Okay, so I'm just very briefly going to introduce Dr. Steve Kayser from the University of Bath. Uh, Steve is in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and I think what's particularly useful for us in hearing from Steve today is the fact that combination of industry background, <coughs> um, academic background, and also, of course, Steve, you've been uh, Bath's uh, academic lead on their forays into the world of MOOCs and in particular into the world of forays and thinking about moves as a medium for education for sustainability. So I think straight away, Steve, I'll hand over to you. Okay, so um, as Sarah mentioned, I have uh, both uh, an academic background and an industry background. So when I, um, when I finished my PhD, which by the way was in insect and biology, I became an IT consultant, as you do, and then I worked 10 years at Hugh Packard's um, industrial uh, research labs in Bristol. So it's very much IT, doing artificial intelligence and those sorts of things. We've got quite interested in sustainability from the point of view of corporates, and we started, uh, started the lab looking at that. Then I came to the university uh, of Bath, and I worked across engineering and management, so I teach an MSc course on innovation, and there's a fair amount of sustainability within that. Uh, and as Sarah said, uh, I was also involved in uh, setting up and running our MOOC on a school, making an impact, and I'll be talking a little bit about that as we go through. One thing that you will notice that I didn't mention from my positive history about myself is thinking about being a professional educationist, so to speak. Uh, can I just ask, how many of you would say that you complement education type of background experts in the So, um, I'm very much an amateur in this world, so I won't go into education theories or anything. I will relate to you my own observations. So, if I use, if I use words like um, uh, connectivist learning, and I use them rather uh, loosely, then I'll so with that caveat, uh, let's go on. The other, the other uh, apology, if you like, I must make is I've got quite a lot to say. I've got more to say than I realised I had. So when I went over my slides, I realised I've probably got too many for the time. So we'll see how the time goes. I will uh, keep the time, but that might mean I need to skip over a little bit. Okay, so um, I must, of course, say that this, some of the work I'm going to present isn't just for me. Danish uh, up there is studying for um, is studying for a PhD at uh, the University of Bath, and he's done a lot of data analysis on our MOOCs, which I'll show you a little bit about. Uh, Tracy is a learning technologist. Um, Marie is very much our technical interface to, to Future Learn, uh, which is our, the, the MOOC provider. Uh, uh, is a biochemist. What she's doing there, I should explain that. Uh, this is what I'm going to talk about, but since it's printed in front of you, I won't dwell on that slide. Instead, I will say that broadly speaking, uh, we've got a combination of uh, education for sustainable uh, MOOCs, and what you might call traditional um, education, and this red thing doesn't seem to be pointing up, so I shall, I shall point vaguely. The intersection between uh, traditional education and MOOCs, I'll be, I'll be doing some kind of comparison there. I'll also do the comparison um, 
of whether there's an intersection between uh, MOOCs and education for sustainable development, what MOOCs potentially bring to the party or, or what they encourage us to think about uh, differently. So let's start with ESD. I say this with some trepidation because, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert of defining these things. But if you look at the ever uh, authoritative Google, it will tell you that education <laughs> is the process of giving or receiving systematic instruction. It sounds a bit didactic uh, to me. So I would hope that we are perhaps aspiring to this uh, enlightening experience that's mentioned next. Um, sustainable development, anyone? So again, little straw poll. Who teaches sustainability or sustainable development? Alright, so a lot of people are not directly involved with teachers' sustainability. Those of you that are will almost certainly at some point mention the Brundtman report to their, to their students, possibly slide one of lecture one. Um, uh, well, and sorry, and while that's fine, uh, while it's a good report, I will just say one of the typical criticisms is that while it's a very neat definition, it actually doesn't tell you how you go about doing this. There's other criticisms. Well, so you need to sort of go further into getting pragmatic guidance. So the HEA um, defines education for sustainable development and very much uh, brings out what you might call the triple bottom line, the social, economic and environmental uh, aspects of, of sustainability, which of course we talk about, but actually tend to spend, if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to spend most of our time talking about the environmental aspect rather than social and economic. Leaving that aside, um, there are um, a range of skills that we're trying to engender in our students and the thing that's interesting about this list to me is that most of them are actually not discipline specific, most of them very much cross disciplines. So when you talk about ESD, of course you, you can talk about renewable energy for example from an engineering perspective, you can talk about uh, climate change, uh, you can talk maybe about uh, environmental economics, you can talk about um, psychological resistance, resistance to change and all that kind of stuff, you can talk about uh, uh, politics and policy levers. Um, of course, the thing I note is that when I talk about any of this, I, I find it very difficult to talk about, say, renewable energy without talking about policy framework around renewable energy. Um, or talking about psychological approaches to it. So they're all, they're all interlinked. It's uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or even if you, want to, uh, if you want to be aspirational, transdisciplinary. But let's not have that discussion right now. Uh, let's instead talk about uh, MOOCs. So, who, uh, firstly, who knows what a MOOC is? Right, everybody, right? Secondly, who has ever studied on a MOOC, right? Virtually everybody. And who has been involved in the delivery of a MOOC? Less people. Okay, fine. So I'm going to ask you a question, which is, obviously, I'm not going to patronise you by asking what MOOCs stand for. Uh, so massive, lots of people, open, you don't need educational qualifications to get onto a MOOC, online, of course. And it's a course in the sense that it's, it's put together uh, as a course rather than a series of disconnected packages, right? There's a structure and a narrative. So here's the question. Of those four words, what is the most distinctive thing 
about a MOOC? What's the most innovative thing about a MOOC? What is it that sets MOOCs apart from anything else? Okay. So, who votes for, have you all thought about which word is the most important? Okay. Who votes for <coughs> massive? Who votes for open? Okay. Who votes for online? And who votes for course? Nobody. Right. Okay. So, I'm going to make uh, a, uh, a pitch. It's interesting that there was a split vote there. Uh, I'm going to make a pitch for... Do you know what, do you know, oh, this is jellyfish, do you know what it relates to? It relates to massive, okay, so that's what my <coughs> assertion is. Now, the reason that I put a jellyfish up there, none of you worked it out yet, and why should you, it's, uh, it's a bit uh, of a left field comparison. If you uh, look at uh, a jellyfish in detail, you'll see that it has a, a nerve net and each one of those nerve cells is very similar to the nerve cell that is, that's in one of your brains, or in my brain, for that matter, right? So there's nothing particularly special about the human nerve cell. But we are, we would like to think, rather more sophisticated and complex uh, than jellyfish. Why is that? It's possibly because rather than having a, a relatively small number of neurons, we have uh, roughly 100 billion neurons and they're organized in complex structures. In other words, the scale right, of size, the, 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 the scale of, of complexity of our brains is driven, at least in part, by sheer, the sheer numbers. So scale brings a qualitative difference as well as a quantitative difference. So the hypothesis, and I'm not saying it's true, but the hypothesis is, do MOOCs uh, work in a qualitatively different way to a uh, to a more uh, to a more limited, if you like, uh, class with 50 or hundreds or hundreds or even even thousand people. When you get up to those many thousands of people, there are different dynamics. Okay. Question: I leave hanging in the air. Who's heard of Clayton Christensen? So this is, this is a, uh, a slide. I like using this slide because it was adapted by one of my uh, MFC students in quite good uh, dissertation. And uh, he wrote a book in 97 called The Innovator's Dilemma. And it's basically, um, like many of these business books, can be described in, in one graph. Uh, and the graph, oh, the red dots reappeared. The graph shows this, that the broadly speaking, what happens, and he used this applied to disk drives and steel mills and various things, and what would happen is that you have, you have a, a general um, dominant technology that is uh, getting better and better over time through what he calls sustaining innovation. All right? So you think about, you know, back in the 1970s, you had these sort of very uh, high-end computers or disk drives uh, that were great, very high-functioning, uh, and they were getting better and better over time, as you would expect. Meanwhile, the, uh, the market demand, you would have the low-end consumers and the high-end consumers, and they expect more and more as time goes on. But his assertion was that the slope of this graph was less than the slope of this graph. And this gives rise to quite an interesting thing. 
because those people that are down at the low end of the market, you get this, what he calls a disruptive technological innovation. So home builds, disk drive kits, or, uh, or mini mills in the, in the steel industry, would be pretty rubbish in terms of quality. But would be, firstly, they attract what you might call the non-consumers, the people that can't afford the, the dominant technology, so the home users for disk drives, for example. So they adopt these technologies, and these technologies gradually get better to the point where they are attacking the low end of the market. All right? So then the low end consumers at this point are perfectly happy with this new disruptive technology, which by and large is a lot cheaper than this high end uh, technology, and therefore they start to steal market share. Uh, and he made an assertion that actually the high by and large, the profit margins are much higher at the high end of the, of the market, and therefore, the, the incumbents are motivated to just leave the low end of the market because their average profit will go up, um, and leave the lower end of the market to the disruptors, but the disruptors end up stealing the whole market. Okay? Uh, he's got lots of empirical data to show, of course, it doesn't happen as neatly as this graph shows. And why am I explaining this to you? I'm explaining this to you because the assertion is that this is what MOOCs are doing and this is what traditional universities are doing. Right? So traditional universities have this incredibly fantastic uh, student experience, very rich student experience, but very expensive student experience. Uh, the, the MOOCs appeal at, uh, at the first stage to non-consumers, people that can't afford to to go to university, but in time they get good enough to replace some part <coughs> of, of university education, the, uh, uh, the lowest part, uh, and then they, they go on from there. That's the theory, right? I'm not saying this is what's happening, I'm saying that's the theory. Um, and I was struck when I went on a, uh, I went on a recruitment visit, I went to Turkey, and I went to uh, Istanbul, there, um, and a fair number of people very interested in coming to University of Bath, and then I went to Ankara, and I found another load of people quite interested in coming to Bath. The difference was, is that the, the guys over here had no money at all, by and large. There's lots of rich people in this, there less people rich people in Ankara. So, they were the sort of people that we would definitely want our, on our courses, but they couldn't afford it at all. It was just completely out of the question. So the question are, are those these low-end consumers that will start um, that will start studying the moves and is that going to drive us all out of business? Uh, well, probably not. Um, this is one example, and I was interested in looking at a, um, a poster just before we started about the demographics of people taking moves. This is this comes uh, from Harvard, as you can see. So Harvard X, uh, I'll explain about the X in a moment. But some of those uh, participants tend to be both richer and higher educated, right, than um, than the average population. So we're not um, we're not at this this kind of low end, the people that are studying MOOCs don't tend to be the people that the, the theory would uh, suggest. But nevertheless, the theory is not, um, is not discredited, and there's plenty of people still arguing that MOOCs act as a disruptor, 
Some people think MOOCs can act as a replacement for certain types of university courses. Uh, some people think MOOCs are very useful as a supplement to different university courses. Some people think MOOCs function best as specific industry-led you know, continuing professional development. So not as a degree, but as a way of picking up specific skills. Okay? And a lot of the MOOC providers in the marketplace are experimenting with, the, with these different models. So certainly it's not clear which way they go, but I put up that slide just to indicate that, that it's, MOOCs, like anything, they're not just one thing. They're a variety of different approaches. So, MOOCs <coughs> Education for Sustainable uh, Development. I am going to explore three hypotheses, okay, and I don't have any proofread of these, but I have some, for any of these, but I have some data that might be interesting, might be conversation starter, you no know, more than this. Uh, what I'm actually going to present to you is um, some thoughts, some experience that we've got from our initial MOOC and some research that's very much in progress at the moment. Um, so it is, and I hope you, you'll forgive me on this, but it's, it's certainly not cut and dried, it's stuff that's going on at the moment. Um, so the three assertions are uh, by extending out, you end up with a, with a, a more global audience, which which gives rise to scale and diversity, uh, massive conversations, so the <coughs> scale and nature of conversations change, and social learning, so participants learning from each other and not just uh, from the instructor. So, the MOOCs. MOOCs. Uh, the one, the one that's, uh, that I was involved in is called Making an Impact, uh, Sustainability for Professionals. As the name suggests, it's kind of aimed at people that are actually out there in industry and what sustainability mean to, to uh, industry and organisations. Uh, this is the way it's structured. It's kind of as you might expect from the title. Uh, we start with the introductions, what is sustainability, we talk about why people are interested in sustainability, talk about standards, talk about various forms of, of innovation, technical, behavioural, policy, innovation, how we're doing, so uh, metrics, and then bring you back to personal, how can you be changed, how can you have an effect. So it's people that really want to be those kind of, um, uh, those drivers for uh, sustainability within organisations, generally. Um, and there's a, a distinction that is sometimes made between what you call, might call ex-MOOCs, yeah, Harvard X, edX, MITx, which is traditional style MOOCs, uh, and C MOOCs, which is the, the connectivism bit. Uh, so where knowledge is constructed by participants, so it's much more about uh, pedagogy than, than, than about uh, scale. This distinction is, like any categorizations, this distinction is, is merely an approximation of what's happening. Uh, and we can get much more uh, sophisticated about the moves, but it will at least give you give a framework of what I'm about to talk about. Because we also have another move, this is where Momna comes in, um, dealing with uh, uh, the biochemistry uh, of, of cancer, and this is a, a more traditional, if you like, this is what might be called the next move, <coughs> 
So, let's see. I'm going to do a quick time check and see how I'm doing. Uh, okay. Ten minutes behind. Fine. <laughs> um, global. Global first. This is a little Google map of who's uh, accessing uh, our MOOC. Um, about half of them, a little under half actually, come from the UK. Another 20% come from Europe and the rest of them are spread all over the world. So we certainly seem to have global reach. Um, and the sort of people that, that study our course compared to the, the more traditional cancer course, uh, they tend to uh, have studied more, you can see they've taken another course, studied at university or worked in related fields. So we're getting the sort of more educated um, group rather than more general group um, that was in the tradition. So that's, that's a bit of context. Um, in terms of global perspectives, we've got people coming from uh, sharing their experiences, this guy from Nepal, and this is something probably you wouldn't have known uh, necessarily from the UK, and then a nice, a lovely story from Africa about the fact that you might think it's quite obvious to have these uh, parabolic reflectors, but if it requires you cooking during the day, during the evening, then you've got a problem. And that was, that was a, it was just a really nice story of not being aware of it. So, so um, we have got, we do seem to be bringing in people from all over the world with individual perspectives, and that's quite useful. Conversations uh, are massive in the sense that if you look at a traditional course, you can see the individual Participants, got some um, people over here that are a bit, uh, bit more isolated. You can see individual notes, you can see how they're, they're connected. Um, if you look at a MOOC, we've got 962 nodes here, so you can't really see the individual ones except for a few very well connected ones. The red one is a, an instructor, by the way, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, if we look at some of the statistics, so by going from 70 up to sort of roughly around 1,000, you end up with a much lower density of links. But the average degree, which is the number of connections that each person has, actually doesn't really change that much. Um, and the average diameter doesn't change that much. So diameter is, is, the, is the longest, shortest part, if you see what I mean, between participants. Um, <coughs> so very often, in these, uh, in these smaller courses, you get a small number of components, which is sort of a, 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 an interconnected network of participants where every uh, participant is linked. In the, when, you, when you scale up, you get this sort of vastly increased number of components, so that rather than a component with, a, with, with these average, high average sizes, you get very low average size. But when you look down on that, that's because you've got a very large number of isolated nodes, in other words, nodes that haven't made any connection with other people. Um, but, um, but you do get, if, we, if you look at the largest components, you're, um, you're looking quite large, over 500 people. So when you get a, a much larger community, you get a much larger uh, individual. So you get a much, a much larger connected community of people. Um, if, 
if I have a moment, I'll say what I mean by uh, connection. For the moment, just say they've had some kind of online interaction, okay, or something like that. Uh, so I said massive conversation. So it's massive in the sense that there's a massive uh, connected lot of people. Are, but are they actually conversing? Well, the, the nature of the conversation, if you compare sustainability and cancer, they say that they are more interested, so we're looking at the uh, everything from yellow to whatever that is, magenta. Um, so this lot of people appear to like discussing, you know, really actively discussing things online with other learners, and, and the nature of this course seems to be appreciably different. I'm carefully not using the word statistic, uh, significantly different, because I haven't done a statistical test on this, but it appears at least on first glance to be um, um, to be appreciably different. So they much, they more enjoy in this format uh, doing discussion. Um, and if you look quantitatively at uh, the network, you will see that by and large, the, the, so the red bars are, are sustainability, you can see that they're consistently engaging more in conversation-like responses. In the interest of time, I won't explain in detail what this means, but there's different ways in which you can interact with, with other people, whether it's reciprocal or not. Like. Um, and then if you look at some of the individual comments, you'll find that the first two comments are, are show that people were valuing this kind, of, uh, this kind of interaction. And the other two comments actually show that we could do more to encourage this, you know, I struggle to interact with other students, I've got the possibility of course of short weekend residential options. So people are saying, yes, I like interaction, I like more. Okay, so this brings us nicely onto the, the third point, uh, which is social learning. And I've caught up on time. Good. Because this bit is the bit that has a bit of a uh, complication in it. Um, I'm sorry about the uh, Quality of that site is obviously an enlarged image um, from this group. Uh, and, but what this shows is that Alice, if you can read that, Alice appears to be quite well connected. So if you actually count her what we call degree, you've got five, uh, five connections. And Raphael only has four connections. But he is acting as a, as a broker connecting these two networks together. And we call that notion uh, betweenness. Um, has anyone done any social network analysis? No one's done that. All right, so, so I, you'll forgive me if I don't go into the mathematics about this. There are some quite formal definitions. But, but the intuition is that these guys um, are very important in connecting different communities together. These people that are, uh, you know, cities of bridge, if you like. Okay. So we're searching for those people and we're searching for, for people to connect people together. Now, if you look at the statistics, what, what I've done is I've plotted each participant and has got an arbitrary number. And I've just, what I've done is I've just ordered them in, in ascending order between them. So you'll see that the vast majority of participants in both cases, in both sustainability and cancer, um, have, have basically no between us at all. And then some people have very high between this at the end. It appears the area under this curve 
um, is more than the area under this curve. So there's more between this going on, there's more of this behaviour going on in sustainability than cancer. Even more so when you, when you actually see that the scales are different. So that scale up at the top there is double uh, that of cancer. Um, this is the one and only data graph I, I will show you, and it's quite complicated. What I've done is I've, I've looked at, I've looked at between us, which is actually plot, plotted on a, on a log scale. Um, and then you'll see that the vast majority of people, this starts at 75%, so the vast majority of people don't really have any between us that worth speaking about at all. And each one of these dots says that by the time you get to this level between us, um, say 0.01. By the time you get to 0.01 of the tweeners, you've basically captured everybody. You've captured 90, sort of 8, 99%. Um, but if you look at this, 0.001, those people um, that have that between us or lower is somewhere between 80 and 85%. For the three runs, we did three runs of sustainability, but is between 90 and 95% um, of the cancer. So you can see that the um, that again, by and large, we've got uh, a lot more people with higher betweenness over in sustainability than we do in cancer. So they are uh, again appreciably different. Um, and then if we look at a more traditional course, so this is a much smaller scale course. This is one of the few examples where I could find um, some data in the, in the literature, and there may be some others uh, that I could do some further comparison on, so this is very preliminary. You can see that, again, um, the, the MOOC, our sustainability MOOC, appears to have higher, higher betweenness than the others. What I've plotted here is I've taken the highest betweenness measure and, and just normalised that to 100%, and then and then the, the sort of second highest between us and third highest between us and fourth, etc. And you can see that in the in the traditional course, the red, the between us goes up very quickly, and in the uh, and in the MOOC you have a larger number of relatively high levels of between us compared to the top between us level. Okay, so there is at least initial idea that you're getting this this um, uh, this high between us behaviour higher propensity to be hubs in online courses. And this is very important. Uh, there's a, a recent paper about the importance of students who are acting as brokers of information, so providing access to new ideas, opinions, and opportunities. That, that's really implicit in everything I've been saying uh, about between <coughs> At which point, you might be thinking, you may or may not be thinking, I don't know what you're thinking, but you might be thinking, um, well, what about this guy here, right, this, this instructor? Um, surely he or she, in this case, actually, is providing the link between students, and if you took them out, they'd be a single point of failure. The whole network would fall apart, and there wouldn't be these connections, and there wouldn't be this, uh, um, uh, there wouldn't be this, uh, sort of large-scale conversation, if you like. Um, it turns out that it's not always like that. If you look at, if you actually look at cancer, 
you'll see that uh, the red notes are far less dominant. And in fact, there are some other notes. These guys um, are acting as quite high uh, levels of conduction. And these are the participants. So if we get the participants in this space, then it doesn't have to be just instructor-led. And indeed, in the later runs of the sustainability, so we did one earlier this year, but we did two earlier this year, um, but I'm showing you one, you can see that these red nodes are much more embedded into the, the network and some of the participants themselves are taking those, uh, those nodes of mediators. So there is hope that it doesn't have to be all instructor-led and completely dependent on the instructors. Um, and in fact, if you look at the top 100 between the scores, um, yes, in March 2014, you know, that one we saw is certainly the top. But actually, if you look at the top 100, there's only one other in, in the top 100, only three here and three here. So there's a lot of people in the network that are acting as, as those really important hubs, uh, and we should nurture that. So, we're getting close to the end now, which is just as well. Um, because if you compare the MOOCs to traditional learning, and this is very um, tentative at the moment, I, I would treat these as prompts for discussion rather than hard conclusions. But what it appears to show at the moment is that, is that um, you, you seem to have the same general level of degree, which is individual connectedness uh, and, and diameter. The community size scales up, so you get these very large components, these very large connected components, so it seems that the loops don't, don't sort of break down into, into small um, communities. But you do get a large number of isolated nodes. Um, a brief caveat here about saying, and I didn't say very um, clearly, what we mean by isolated participants. So I mentioned it briefly here. Every node in our social network, every one of those 962 people were people that had posted a comment. So they had participated in some way. Even if they were completely isolated, they had still posted a comment. We had about 5,000 learners, so we had a lot of people that browsed and didn't produce comments. The 962 people, or about 1,000 people, Produce the comments that they have. They are participating, even though they're noted in who is isolated. In order to, in order to become connected to the network, they either had to respond to someone else's comment, or someone else had to respond to them. Okay. So isolated doesn't mean they're completely non-participatory. And of course, they may have participated in other ways that aren't captured. So that's a general. <laughs> um, and potentially. Uh, and this is very, potentially you have a greater reliance on progress as you, as you scale the size of the network, you, have, you need these people that are, are acting as brokers between different communities. Okay, and that's a case of how do we encourage that to happen. And comparison to what you might call a more traditional uh, instructor-led MOOC, or knowledge-led MOOC anyway, and there seems to be more conversation and discussion. That, but that's I'm reasonably confident about that because we've got the uh, um, we've got the, the data to show that. Um, it's not. I'm not saying anything about the depth of the discussion. I'm just saying that there's more connectedness and people talking to each other. So that's the question: Is there actually more what we call social learning? And I would say the data doesn't actually 
prove that one way or the other at the moment, and that's the subject for, for, for digging a little bit deeper. And there appears to be a greater propensity for, for brokers that complicated graph about the tweens. So we use principled analysis, the technique I use is called social network analysis, which a lot of people have heard of. Um, you can look at whether instructors have effects, so the warnings don't over rely on instructors within a large scale loop. Um, you can see, of course, the isolated participants, and you want to do things <coughs> in some way, and you identify the brokers and you want to nurture them. You can also objectively measure the effect on, on interventions. So one of the things that, that FutureLearn did after their uh, FutureLearn, by the way, is, um, is the platform that we use to deliver our MOOC, and it's a collaboration of a number of, of universities, including Bath and including Huxley. Um, so, um, so they put a couple of, they, they're co constantly working on how to improve the interactivity in these moves. So rather than just, uh, you don't necessarily have to reply to a comment, you can just like it in a Facebook-like way. So that's another method of participation that we didn't actually capture. Um, or you can put on public lectures, as we do, or you can have workshops. You can do these sorts of things, but you can actually get some, some analysis about whether these things work. So, final thoughts, last slide. Um, MOOCs can potentially enable large-scale communication, and perhaps I should say on their social learning, question mark. Um, I was certain that the difference is the end. Education for sustainable development, as we, as we know, of course, lends itself, well, you say as we know, you can come back and tell me I'm wrong, lends itself to a connectivist model, uh, more of an exchange of views rather than a traditional didactic model. And our challenge, really, as we scale up this learning, is to maintain or even enrich uh, meaningful conversations about that understanding. And that concludes.